God, we sing of our Redeemer because, God, we praise you. That though we are sinful and unrighteous, God, you gave our Redeemer, Jesus, to be sin for us. As your word tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, God, we sing of our Redeemer. And we know that our Redeemer lives. Jesus is our living God, we thank you for your word that points us to Jesus, your word that is living and active, that is sharper than a double-edged sword, your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, as we open your word this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak to us, guide us into all truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Dan, thank you for leading us today in John's absence in choir. Thank you. It looks like we have most of you here, not most of you in New York. So we're glad to have you with us. And thank you for leading us. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 17. And I'll confess this morning that I don't know Pastor David's rules about this kind of thing, but what I do know is that Pastor David's birthday was yesterday. And so I know that at some point today, he would appreciate an email or text message from you, whatever form of contact you can get in touch with him. He would love to hear from you, and then I'll deal with the consequences later. I'm not too worried about it. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. You can point out that I didn't speak anything of his age. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I don't know what things were like in your home growing up, but I know that in my home there were rules and there were, rule, there were consequences when those rules were broken. And many of those rules, I had an older sister and 
Uh, she was very good to obey most rules, and I was not very good to obey most rules. And so a lot of these rules were set in place just for me. And one of those rules came about in middle school when I came home with my first detention from school and shared that with my parents. And my dad said, son, when you get detention at school, there will be consequences at home. And those consequences were typically grounding, restriction, uh, depending on the nature of the, what, what maybe I had done or in surrounding circumstances or maybe a spanking involved. My dad was never hesitant to do that. Um, and so there was consequences for detention, but then there came a time where there needed to be another rule added on top of that, which was if you come home with a detention for disrespect, there will be additional consequences. Well, that day came in the eighth grade. Uh, I was disrespectful to a teacher, and I remember her giving me a demerit for disrespect, which meant automatic detention. And so Thursday rolled around when detention slips were handed out, and I had to take that home and share with my parents that I had a detention for disrespect. So got home from school, shared that with mom, hoping that she could help soften uh, the conversation when dad got home from work, but that didn't really work in my favor. And another thing that didn't, didn't really matter in our household was my story. So I could have pled my case. I could have pled my case with my dad all that I wanted to and said, Dad, I don't really feel like I deserve to disrespect. I just didn't even waste my breath because my story did not matter. If I got in trouble at school, I was getting in trouble at home. And so I, my dad got home from work. I shared with him about the detention for disrespect. And so he began to lay out what the consequences would be, some grounding and restriction. I might have even gotten a spanking for this one. I don't remember the details of it. I've tried to forget a lot of that. Uh, and so those consequences were enacted, but there was never really any mention of what those additional consequences would be. So Thursday night, I go to bed and wake up Friday morning. I go to school as usual. Friday evening rolls around. My dad says, hey, I'll take you to detention in the morning. Detention was at about 8.30 at the school that I grew up in on Saturday mornings. He said, I'll take you to detention. Well, then I go to bed Friday night, and at some point in the night, in what seemed like the middle of the night, the door to my room opens. The light comes on in my room. My covers are pulled off the bed, and my dad says, son, get out of bed. Detention starts now. It was 5 or 5.30 in the morning. It was still dark outside, Pensacola, Florida. It doesn't get too cold down there, but this was wintertime, January or February. Uh, it was probably 35 or 40 degrees that morning. He says, put on some warm clothes. We're going outside to wash cars. Yes, sir. Put on some warm clothes. We had a sink in our garage that had hot and cold water. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to fill this bucket up with hot water, and I'm going to take it out there to wash cold, cold cars in the cold weather. And so I start to fill up the bucket with hot water, and my dad looks at me and says, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm filling this up with hot water so we can go wash cars in the cold. And he said, no, dump out the hot water and go fill it up with the hose water that will be nice and cold. I said, yes, sir. So I dumped the hot water out and go, we're washing cars. Uh, at that time, my sister, who was a couple years older than me, she had a car. Mom and dad had a car. We're washing all three cars. My dad's out there with me every step of the way. But it didn't take but about three to five minutes of washing cars for my fingers just to begin to hurt. I mean, that kind of hurt when your hands are cold and they just burn, they sting. If you hit them on something, it hurts and you think it's broken, but you can't feel it, so you're not sure. And so my fingers, my fingers are hurting. I know that his fingers are hurting too because he's washing cars with me. He's not saying anything about it, so I'm not saying anything about it. So we're washing cars and then, I mean, it's 6.30 in the morning. We're done washing three cars. There's more work to be done before detention starts. So we start to prune bushes in the yard and we're uh, raking leaves and kind of not trying to, we're not cranking lawnmowers or anything at this point. I don't want to wake up the neighbors, but we're doing a lot of work before detention ever begins. Dad takes me to detention. We come home from, he picks me up from detention. We get back. We're in the yard the rest of the day. We're working. There's a lot of life lessons being taught. He's doing a lot of talking. I'm doing a lot of listening. We're working in the yard together. And then that afternoon rolls around and we're getting cleaned up in the garage, kind of putting all the tools away and getting ready to go inside and eat some dinner. And he gets my attention in the garage and he looks at me and he says, son, 
So next time you think about being disrespectful of one of your teachers, I want you to remember how bad your fingers were hurting this morning when you were washing those cars. I said, yes, sir. Now, I can't tell you today that that was the last attention I ever got. I guess I could tell you that, but it wouldn't be true. But I can tell you, I can tell you that, that was the last attention I ever got for disrespect. That, that did it. I didn't want any more 5 a.m. wake-up calls to wash cars in a 35 or 40 degree weather. And while, while my dad is not Jesus, I'm not making a, a comparison there, what my dad was doing in that moment was he had taught me with authority. I knew that my dad had authority. I respected my dad. He's, he's a great man. He was here in our early service this morning, so he got to hear me tell this story about him. I respected my dad. I respected his authority. But what he did in that moment was he put his authority to work with his actions. Not only did he make me get up and do that, he did it with me. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. Jesus is not dishing out consequences here in Matthew chapter 8, but Jesus has just taught the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. One of the most talked about passages of Scripture, one of the most quoted passages of Scripture, select verses from there people quote often. And especially when it comes to words directly from Jesus, this is one of the most talked about passages, and scholars love to study this passage. And Jesus taught with authority in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then in Matthew chapter 8, 9, 10, and following, Jesus begins to display his authority by his works. Think about some of the things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to highlight a few. You can follow along if you want to in your Bible. I'll start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. At the end of chapter 6 and verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven and when jesus finished saying these things the crowd the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds recognize his authority and then through his teaching and then Jesus begins to display his authority by his works. The first thing is Jesus is coming down the mountain and there's great crowds following him. A leper came to him. It says, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him in humility and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out and touches this unclean leper and he is made clean. Lepers were outcasts. 
Lepers were made to live outside the city gates in what would be somewhat of a village of lepers so that they would, not, they would be isolated there so that they would not infect other people. Lepers were ceremonially unclean and they could not enter the temple to worship. And people did not want to be around the lepers lest they too get close to them, touch them, and become unclean. This leper was an outcast. But in his boldness and humility, he comes before Jesus and he kneels before him and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Maybe he's heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, the one who is clean, who is righteous, reaches out and touches this unclean leper. And instead of Jesus being made unclean, the leper is made clean. He's cleansed of his leprosy. And Jesus says to him, see to it that you don't say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He's already got great crowds following him, multitudes following him. He doesn't want to make any more of a stink. He doesn't want to bring awareness to his ministry any more than needs to be at this point, lest they begin to try to overthrow him as they do later in his ministry. He says, don't say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. And not only show yourself to the priest, but offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. So this priest would have served as kind of a health inspector. That if a leper was made clean, they'd go show themselves to the priest so that they could be able to go and worship in the temple. The priest is a health inspector, and he says, not only go show yourself to the priest, but offer to them the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. You can read in Leviticus chapter 14 about all that a leper had to do to be made ceremonially clean after being unclean with the disease. There was a lot of rituals and ceremonies to go through for them to be able to get back into the temple to worship. And Jesus has just said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Thank goodness that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we no longer have to go through these cleanliness rituals and cleansing rituals to be in the presence of God and to be able to worship him as this leper would have had to do. Jesus continues after healing the leper, he continues and he's entering Capernaum. And a centurion comes to Jesus appealing to him. Lord, my servant lies at home suffering terribly. He's paralyzed. Not a lot of questions are asked that we see here. Jesus just says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion says, well, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This Roman centurion who is over 100 soldiers, that's where the name centurion comes from. He was a Gentile, and he knew that Gentiles, the Jews, were not supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. So he said, I'm not worried to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. You see an exchange that takes place between Jesus and this centurion. And Jesus says, he marveled and said to those who followed him, I tell you with with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now we see at the end that Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is not just a Roman Gentile centurion. This is his servant, that this man cared enough about his servant to go to Jesus and appeal to him to come and heal his servant. And it was done just as he believed, and his servant was healed at that very moment. Then, Peter, then Jesus enters Peter's house. If you, look, you can look at historical writings, and historians believe that Peter lived in Capernaum, and they have pictures of what they believe to be his house. You can, you can see those. And Peter, uh, Jesus goes to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus touches her hand and he heals her. The fever left her and she got up and began to serve them. We see three healings in this passage, but we have to look at Jesus's words about the centurion. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who, who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I seen such faith. Other translations say that Jesus was astonished at the faith of the centurion. Well, what was it that was so astonishing or that caused Jesus to marvel at the faith of the centurion? Three things that we see about the faith of this centurion. The first one, Jesus believed, or the centurion believed that Jesus' word is enough. The centurion didn't believe that Jesus needed to come into his home. He knew that as a Gentile, that a Jew was not supposed to come into his home. He didn't believe that his presence was, that Jesus' power was in his presence. He didn't believe that Jesus' power was in any kind of mysticism. He believed that Jesus' word, that Jesus' power was in his words. He says, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. This man believed that Jesus' word is enough. And church, we don't have Jesus here physically present with us to speak words to us, to speak words of faith and words of healing to us, but we do have his word to us that God gave to us in, his, in this written word. And we have to make the decision that we believe that this word of God is enough or it's not. And we say we believe that this word is authoritative, that this word of God is inspired and it's inerrant and it's infallible and that this is God's word to us that reveals to us God's plan of redemption from creation to the end of time when God will restore all things to himself, when those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ will rise, will spend eternity with him. We know that we read about that in here. That's God's plan that he has revealed to us through his word. And it's one thing for us to say that we believe that God's word is enough, and it's another thing for us to live like we believe that God's word is enough. Because often what's tempting for us to do is to take the parts of God's word that we like and that talk about God's love and, and his grace and his mercy to us and then take those parts that might be offensive to our culture and take those parts that might talk about God's justice and his wrath and to say, well, we, we want to talk more about these others and not about these because they may be offensive and that is not up to us to determine. Either God's word is enough and his word is authoritative in its entirety or it's not. And that's a choice that each of us as individuals has to make, a decision that we have to make that his word is authoritative, his word is enough. We have to make that as individuals, we have to make that as a church, as Christian organizations. And when we make that decision that God's word is authoritative and the foundation for everything that we do, then it affects the way that we live and that we stand on the foundation of the truth that's in God's word. And there are seasons of life, no doubt, that are difficult for us to take God at his word. And believe that his word is authoritative and believe that we can find hope in his word. And it's in those dark seasons of life. In those seasons of doubt and darkness where we might be walking through a marriage problem and we're not sure how things are going to come out on the other side. And it's hard for us to have hope in those moments. Or it may be a financial crisis that we're walking through and we're wondering, is God going to do anything about this? Is God for us in this? Or it might be in a medical diagnosis of a loved one. That is not good news and that the end is near and there's no cure for that. And we wonder in those seasons of darkness, is, is God there? Does God's word speak to these things? Is God going to be faithful through this? Can I have hope that God, then take God at his word? And we see David throughout the Psalms wrestling with these same seasons of darkness and doubt, often throughout the Psalms. Psalm 13 is an example of that. David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. A season of darkness and doubt for David, wondering where is God and how long is God going to forget him. But listen to what David says in verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 13. I've trusted, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, or as other translations say, because he has been good to me. David is reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the past. That even in the seasons of unfaithfulness and doubt and darkness for God's people, the people of Israel, that God was faithful to them. And that he will be faithful in the present as he has been in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. David reminding himself of who God is and of God's faithfulness to him in the midst of that season of darkness. And for us, we believe that God's word is enough, but do our lives reflect that? Just about a month ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Horn of Africa with a team of five uh, Dawson members to work with our Go Love Tell partners there. And we were in a remote mountain area working with a people group that is an unreached people group. They don't even have a complete written language. And so what we were able to do through Go Love Tell, we've worked with Bible translators to, have, uh, to use technology through solar-powered MP3 players to have parts of the Bible translated in their language or the language closest to that people group that many of them would speak and be able to understand and so they can listen to the word of God on these mp3 players and on Thursday we were scheduled to leave on Friday on Thursday one of the things that we got to do was to go to one of the missionaries homes and to gather with three believers from that people group and in this country there's only 70 to 80 known believers in that people group of 30 to 50,000 and we were able to meet with three of them and part of our, our time, we were going to pray together and we were going to read God's word together and, and hear some stories from them about what God is doing in, in, their, in their people group. And as we began our time together, one of the missionaries picked up her Bible and she began to read from Psalm chapter 13. Or not from Psalm chapter 13, but she began to read from the book of Psalm. And as she began her reading, those three local believers from this people group stood up at the reading of God's word. Right there in the living room of a house. Not us five lazy Americans, we stayed seated, but they stood up at the reading of God's word, recognizing that God's word is enough, that his word is authoritative, that there's power in his word and something that we take for granted, that we have access to, that each of us has one of these in our hands or in our lap or in the pew in front of us right now, something that they have very little access to. But at, that, at the reading of God's word, they stood because there's power in the word of God. And this centurion believed that Jesus' word is enough. The second thing, this centurion's faith was a simple faith, but a profound faith. This centurion was not, he's a Gentile, a, a Roman. He's not been brought up in Israel and steeped in the scriptures as those in Israel would have been. So he hasn't learned the five books of the Bible from birth like those in Israel and the, the religious leaders and teachers would have been taught from the time they were born. He doesn't have a lot of background for the coming Messiah. His faith is simple, but it's profound. It's the faith that Jesus talks about, a childlike faith, a humble faith, not a haughty faith. That the Pharisees, they thought they had everything figured out and didn't recognize their need for Jesus. It's a humble faith that expresses faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. He, he comes to Jesus and appeals to him. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. He says, well, I'm not, I'm not worried to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. He believes that Jesus can heal his servant. It's a simple faith 
but a profound faith. And what we see throughout Scripture is that for us to be made righteous through Jesus requires our faith in him. That we are unrighteous, we put our faith in Jesus, we are made righteous through his blood shed on the cross. Or even in the Old Testament, before Jesus went to the cross, it it tells us in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't earn righteousness. He believed that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And he took God at his word. When God says, Abraham, I'm calling you to go, he went, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness in the same way that Christ's righteousness is credited to us when we put our faith in him. This centurion believed that Jesus' word is enough. His faith was simple and his faith was profound. And the third thing is this centurion believed that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. Look at the analogy that he uses in verse 9. He says, Jesus, I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's saying to Jesus, I'm a man under authority as you are. He recognizes that Jesus has divine authority that comes from God. Again, he doesn't have any background in the doctrine of the Trinity, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he recognizes that Jesus has authority that comes only from God, and that Jesus is God in the flesh he realizes that recognizes that jesus when jesus speaks god speaks and he believes that jesus can heal his servant what would have been so while jesus marveled at the faith of this centurion what would have been astonishing or those who were listening what they would have marveled at with jesus's words in verse 11 it says i tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is pointing out that there will be those that from outside Israel will be sitting at that banquet, that banquet feast of the Lamb in heaven, that they will be in the kingdom, that Jesus has the authority of the kingdom. And there will be those outside Israel who will be in the kingdom while the sons of the kingdom, some of those who are there in Israel, will be thrown out into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that, hey, those in Israel, the kingdom is much broader than you might think. And Jesus illustrates this by him healing an unclean leper. And then he heals a Roman Gentile centurion's servant. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. The Pharisees woke day in and day out and prayed this. This was one of their prayers that they prayed every day. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a woman. These were three categories of people that those in Israel thought were outside of the kingdom, or at least were not very highly viewed in their culture, and Jesus heals those very people. This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture, that Jesus is showing us the authority that he has in the kingdom, that the kingdom is much broader than we might think. It doesn't have anything to do with where we were born or who we are. We're not righteous, but he gives us his righteousness for our unrighteousness. This is the great exchange that Jesus came to give, the righteous for the unrighteous, the clean for the unclean. Jesus came to make the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, and the dead alive. Even as he does for us while we are yet dead in our sins and transgressions, he makes us alive through himself, Christ, on the cross. The kingdom is much broader than those in Israel thought, and it's much broader than we might think. There's a story in Genesis chapter 48 that illustrates receiving the blessing that God offers. And who is who are heirs of the kingdom? Genesis chapter 48, we see Jacob who's getting old. He's not doing well health-wise. 
He's pretty much bedridden. He's a patriarch of the faith, also called Israel. He's mentioned in this passage as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is in his bed, but he hears that Joseph, one of his sons, is coming and bringing two of his grandsons to see him. And Jacob rallies his strength, and he sits on the edge of his bed to greet his son and his two grandsons, excited to see them as a granddad would be. Jacob sits there, and Joseph comes in with Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh being the older grandson and Ephraim being the younger grandson. He brings them in, and Jacob and Joseph are able to exchange a conversation, and Jacob said, I never thought I'd see you again, son, and I certainly never thought I'd see these two grandsons. And Joseph desires for Jacob to bless Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Jacob, sitting there on the bed, Joseph brings Manasseh, the older one, and he puts him on Jacob's right knee, sitting on his right knee next to his right hand, because he's the older one, and he would receive the greater blessing from Jacob's right hand. He brings Ephraim, the younger one, and sits him on Jacob's left knee, so that he received the lesser blessing from his left hand. And when Jacob goes to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, Jacob crosses his arms. And he blesses Ephraim, the younger one, with the greater blessing from his right hand. And he blesses Manasseh, the older, with the lesser blessing from his left hand. And Joseph thinks that Jacob has made a mistake, so he tries to correct it. And Jacob says, no, no, Joseph, this is Manasseh, this older one. He will be great, but Ephraim, the younger, will be even greater. And we look throughout the Old Testament. We know that Jesus and salvation history didn't come from the line of Joseph, the line of Ephraim, or the line of Manasseh. He came from the tribe of Judah. So this has nothing to do with salvation history. So why then would Jacob bless the younger grandson with the greater blessing and the older grandson with the lesser blessing? It's a theme that we see all throughout Scripture, that receiving the blessing that God offers has nothing to do with our natural status in this world, has nothing to do with where we're born, what country we're born in, what our status is, what our wealth is, what our importance is. But quite the contrary, it has everything to do with God's grace. The gospel is not good news because you and I are good. The gospel is good news because God is good. And in his love, he sent Jesus, the righteous, to give his life for the unrighteous, to make what is unclean, clean. And it's not up to us to determine who's in and who's out in the kingdom. It's up to us to point people to faith in Jesus Christ, that his righteousness would be credited to them. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning recognizing that there are many days where we try our best to earn your favor where we begin to play this bartering game with you, thinking that if we do good things, that you will love us more. That if we do these righteous acts, God, that you will grant us blessing. God, but we know from your word that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before you. God, that you are a holy, holy, holy God, and our sin separates us from you. And it is only by your grace and your love for us through your son Jesus who shed his blood on the cross for our sins that we can be made right with you and that we become heirs of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords by your grace and your grace alone. God, there may be some here this morning who have never come to you in that childlike, humble faith and said yes to salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. God, we pray that today would be the day.
that they put faith in you. Lord, thank you for your love for us through Jesus. And it is in his powerful name that we pray. Amen.